I am thrilled to announce that An Actor Despairs is partnering with a wonderful CBD company called Kind Farms. Everyone out there has heard of CBD. I started taking it a few years ago when I first started getting sober and to help with my anxiety. Sadly, as one can do, I was overtraining in the gym, and a friend recommended a topical and a tincture to help with the pain. I tried it. It was okay. However, recently, I was introduced to a product that has really changed my life. Not only has it helped me with anxiety, but I am stronger than I have ever been. I'm able to carry out lifts my body used to prevent me from doing. Kind Farm products have single-handedly changed my life athletically and personally. They utilize 100% local licensed farmers, organic cultivation, and CO2 extraction for superior CBD. Kind Farms is turning CBD to a kind alternative to pharmaceuticals. Let's transform tobacco row into hemp row. If you want to get involved, please reach out. Together, we can make a difference. You can use my code RYAN10 for 10% off. You can find them on Instagram at Kind Farms Inc., all one word. That's K I N D P H A R M S I N C. And their website is kindfarmsinc.com. Once again, my code for 10% off is Ryan10. And now, let's get started with today's show. Welcome to An Actor Despairs. I'm your host, Ryan Perez. Today on An Actor Despairs, we have a very special episode with iconic film historian, documentarian, director, Laurent Bouzereau. He's done projects such as Netflix's Five Came Back. He's done every behind-the-scenes documentary for Steven Spielberg and so many others. And today we're here to talk about his new documentary for HBO about Natalie Wood. It's so amazing to hear the story of an actress who started so young in the business and thrived and made so many incredible transformations until her unfortunate, tragic death. I'm so excited that he gave so much information about how he got started in the business and how passion really succeeded. Here it is. Laurent Brizero, welcome to the show, man. I, I'm so grateful to have you on. I'm, I mean, what you have done for cinema. I mean, when the history books are written, your name is going to be there. You have, you've celebrated some of the most important filmmakers and moreover, you, you, you've made filmmakers that weren't of necessarily my generation, you know, immortal. And that's the beauty of cinema is it, when it's, it's done right, it's a shot at immortality. And moreover, all your, all your behind the scenes making features are just, they played such a big part in like inspiring me and giving me hope. So welcome. Well, thank you so much. It's a real pleasure talking to you. And, and, and um, I, I want to congratulate you on your mission as well. And, and uh, that's really great to be talking to you. So thank you. Well, welcome to the show, and it's such a pleasure to have you on. But before we dig in the work, I'd like to start at the beginning. You grew up in, in France? Yeah. Are you kidding? We're going way back. <laughs> yeah. Way back. Oh, my God. Uh, yes, I grew up in France. Uh, Earthquakes in cinema. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. You know, it was, it was actually uh, really a great place to grow up on. Uh, um, it was it, because the French, you know, for better or for worse, you know, they love movies, you know, and, and, um, so as a kid, you know, I, I would go to, to see all those old American movies. And I literally did not like French cinema or, 
um, or even European cinema, I just automatically gravitated to American movies. And I don't know where that came from, really. But Who was helping cur- curate? Were your parents or was it just you going to the cinema alone? Um, it was just me. I was, you know, my mom kept a diary about my personality from zero to seven years old, which is a really scary thing because she describes me and I haven't changed. <laughs> and, uh, I, I, I have a lot less hair, but, you know, at, at five years old, I apparently said I want to direct movies. I don't remember that, but I grew up in a little town outside Paris, and there was a movie theater there, and I don't remember the first movie I went to see, but I remember constantly looking back at the beam of light that was coming. Wow. And I noticed that there was at times a change of beam of light was coming either from that window or that window. So I told my dad, I said, you know, I really want to go up and see what's happening up there. So my dad talked to the owner of the theater. I said, my, my kid, you know, loves movies and he wants to, uh, to see what it's like in the projection booth. So I remember, I mean, I don't remember how old I was, maybe like eight or something. Wow. And I just remember this staircase to the projection booth. In my memory, it's 500 steps. It's like this gigantic, you know, moment. Yeah. Going up and I'm scared, you know. And I open the door and it's this overheated cave, (laughs) you know, (laughs) with two projectors. And the projectionist was super nice. And he explained to me at that time, you know, um, you would keep on switching reels. Yeah. Um, so he said, when you see a little circle on top of the frame. Cigarette burns. Mean, yeah. You know, it means we have to start, you know, the other projector. And then the second one means I have to change reel. Well, I felt had been given the greatest secret in the world. And from that moment on, you know, I just became obsessed with behind the scenes, you know, how things were made because, you know, there's a cliche phrase about the magic of movies, but um, to me, it was all about discovering how things were made. And so my my mom's mom actually worked in the uh, number one film lab in in France. She was in- In the Technicolor equivalent of... Yeah, it's yeah. called Studio Eclair. And so when I was really young, I don't know how old I was, but um, she got me an internship there during the summer, and I worked with the uh, color timer. So I learned about, you know, like how you would get um, a, a frame, a film, and you would change the colors and and then have it processed and then watch the dailies in the cutting room or in the wow. screening room. And and so I, I really started, you know, diving into that whole world. And each time I learned something, you know, I just felt, hey, I know something nobody else knows about, or something, yeah. you know. And then the biggest of all the events was uh, the James Bond movie, Moonraker, wow. was entirely shot in um, all the studio stuff, not the location, obviously, but all the studio stuff was shot in France. Um, and uh, my dad, who is not in the film business, n- was on the board of a bank and the owner of the studio was on the board of the same bank. Wow. <laughs> so my dad said, 
hey, my kid really wants to go on the set of Moonraker, can you? And and so I caught him sick for school for a week. Oh and, my God. And I got to be on the set. And it was amazing because it was the set of the inside of the spaceship, you know, <sighs> with... And so Jaws was there and Roger Moore and Lois Childs, with whom I'm still friends with, actually. And and I remember, you know, the set was was built and designed by Ken Adam, who is a legend, you know, designed Barry Lyndon and Dr. No. Wow. And and I remember, you know, the film was directed by Louis Gilbert. And I remember I got to the studio super early. And this is before... Anybody worries about who the hell is this kid who is on the yeah. set? <laughs> that would never happen today, needless to say. And I, I walked onto the set before anybody was there. And there was the director, Louis Gilbert, who was just staring at the set. And I, I got to interview him years later um, for a book I wrote on James Bond called The Art of Bond. And, and I told him that story. He said, yeah, it was such a a huge set. I, I, I was trying to figure out how I was going to film the day. <laughs> no way. And, wow. and, and so I, I got to be on set for a week, you know, and, and I was paired up with the sound mixer who hated me because I walked doing takes. And <laughs> I kept, I kept Those guys are the it. most toughest dudes in the game. <laughs> oh, I was just like, you know, I, I, I was just, uh, I mean, it was, it changed my life, you know, needless to say. And, and, yeah. um, and so I, I love spectacle, you know, I loved, I, I love the artifice of cinema, you know, yeah. uh, I, 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 and the French movies and Italians and German films, and to some degree, some of the British movies, you know, were too real. And I'm like, I'm not interested in reality, you know, I'm yeah. fantasy. And, and what I mean by fantasy, it could be a drama, but I, you know, this, the, the Americans had a knack at making movies that had a beginning, a middle and an end. The, the three French X structure. Film, the French films and European film, I just felt I was being dropped in the middle of somebody's life and and you never knew if there was going to be an ending or you didn't really know how it started, you know? And it's so beautiful. And, 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 you know, another important... Um, uh, so I was collecting movie posters. The first poster I ever bought was Towering Inferno. No <laughs> and, way. And I still have it. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> you know, and um, I would go to this one movie store in Paris called Limelight uh, after the uh, Charlie Chaplin movie. And I would go there every Saturdays at 11 a.m., every Saturday. And I would trade posters, images. I would buy books, whatever. And Was this and, a movie rental facility as well? No, no it was a movie, uh, movie store, movie well, memorabilia store. Wow. You know. They sold movie posters and books, and and there was just one guy there. I mean, there were rarely anyone else in the store. Yeah. But this was a Saturday, and on Wednesday, Truffaut, who was the only French director I liked because he had written a book on Hitchcock uh-huh. and because he was in Close Encounters of the Third Kind, you yeah. know? Yeah. But uh, I was his new movie was about to come out that Wednesday. Films come out on Wednesdays in France. Um, at least they did back then. And so I was saying, true for this and true for that. And he walks into the store. <laughs> oh, my God. And I just go, oh, my God, it's true And, um, you know, it was so moving because he went to buy a couple of books. 
And I said, I'm so sorry to bother you, you know, but I'm so excited about your new film and I just love, we talked about Spielberg. I remember we talked about Hitchcock and yeah. he was very open, you know, and, and, and I said, you know, I'm so excited. Your new movie, The Last Metro is about to come out. And, and he said to me, he said, I'm terrified because all of my movies are flops. No one goes to see my movies anymore. Wow. And, and, and it was, you know, I was young and I was like, wow, to hear that from someone you idolized and, yeah. and with, you, you, you know, and to hear of their fears, even though in your mind's eyes, you know, they're, they're, they're the biggest gods. titans of, of, yeah. Yeah. Gods almost. Yeah. yeah. You know, was, was really interesting and something I've never forgotten. And, and, and the weird thing is that it's the movie that put him back on the map actually um, uh, as far as, as the public, because it's true. Uh, um, looking back at that era in his in his um, in his career, uh, his previous films just weren't getting good reviews, and he was and it was flop after flop, and and uh, the last Metro put him back on the map. But in any case, it was another encounter that that was very meaningful to me, you yeah. know, and and um, and to to have the sort of like uh, I want to say the courage to talk to him because I didn't know what to say, you know, but uh, I've shared that story with uh, Steven Spielberg when I did my doc on closing encounters, because I was like, you know, uh, uh, it was so meaningful for me to, to, to meet Truffaut, even yeah. though I never got to talk to him or see him again. And, and as you know, you know, he passed away, uh, fairly, uh, fairly soon after that film. So, um, so it was, it, it was fantastic, you know, but I, I knew, you know, that my calling was, was America, you know, mm -hmm. and my dad, um, who again, you know, not being in the film business, but, you know, actually changed my life so many, so many times over, traveled a lot to America for business. And he was on, on the Concorde actually sitting next to this, um, really rich and, and, and really cool lady, Sally. And they started talking because she wanted, my dad was sitting next to the window and she wanted to trade seats. And my dad okay. said, no. <laughs> <laughs> and then of course he finds out she's a producer and he's like, oh my God, I'm gonna about to ask her for it. <laughs> and I just, you know. And so um, he said, you know, my kid wants to be in the film business and he's finishing up with uh, high school. And she's like, ah, send him over. And she lived in New York and she had started a, a small production company. You know, it was the time of the all those little films being made. And, and she had just done a little horror film that was absolutely horrendously bad called The Returning. And it was with... Ruth Warwick, who was in Citizen Kane, of all things. Yeah. And she played, you know, uh, uh, Kane's wife. And Susan Strasberg, you know, the, you know, the daughter of Lee Strasberg. Wow. But really a bad movie. In any case, she had a small production company, and, and I was sent over, and that was the summer of E.T. And Poltergeist, and, and um, I just arrived in New York, and I decided I am never leaving Again. Wow! And, and I I went back to France to <laughs> to eventually pack my stuff and move everything. You know, yeah. I had a couple of trips, and but but that was like 
I just loved New York, the energy. I live here. I know it well. <laughs> you know, I, yeah. I, I just, uh, it, it, you know, I was pretty um, by myself as a kid. You know, I didn't have many friends. And, um, and you know, I didn't feel, I felt like the odd the odd guy who just collected movie posters, you know. And um, and when I came to America, people were so different from Europe. Um, you know, everybody was extremely um, moved by the fact that I was so passionate. Yeah. You know? And, and um, I was all about Spielberg and Brian De Palma. I was obsessed with those two directors. Like you, I, you wrote a book on Brian De Palma. Yeah, I, yeah. yeah. And I, 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 I knew their movies in a way that um, at the time, you know, this is before. I mean, home entertainment was just starting, you know. Yeah. But I, I had seen Dress to Kill. I don't know by that time, maybe fifty times. I would go. I could recite. I knew when you were going to hear a dog bark in the background of a scene. Wow, no way. And, and, but, but it was it was much more than just like, you know, a blind passion for something. It was like the something that was, that had, wow, you can write stories with a camera. You can, you know, it's just so, it was like, um, you, you, you know, you can actually, emote things with a camera, you know, and, yeah. and you can have tricks, you know, uh, uh, like the Palma would introduce characters that only appear later on in the film as extras, you know? Yeah. And when I started discovering, like, because I would go see the movie over and over, I would be like, Oh my God, that's so amazing. You know, you can only catch that if you've seen the movie once, you know, uh, yeah. and, 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 and Spielberg's, you know, incredible uh, visual language and storytelling and 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 so it, it you, you know um people like just were fascinated with the fact that this kid with a really thick french accent knew so much about you know yeah. america and that sort of like people were so generous i could i had so suddenly I went from having no friends to having so many friends. Everybody told me you can stay with them. We'll do anything for you. Here are tickets to screenings. Wow. The Broadway show, and you can go see it. Somebody took me to see Raquel Welsh in Woman of the Year, Dream Girls. Like, I'd never seen a Broadway show before, you know. Did so, you feel an attachment to theater like you did film or not quite the same? Not quite the same. Yeah. Because... I didn't understand, you know, the thing I didn't understand about Broadway was the culture. Yeah. Like people screaming at the actors, <laughs> you know, like sort of like, uh, particularly like I remember it, it, it felt less intimate yeah. than, than the movie experience to me. Totally. And people were like, participating almost in a way like I'm like I'm trying to listen to her sing. yeah they're eating candy and drinking I know it's so annoying I love Harold Pinner's words about you know going to the theater but so, so uh, it, it was kind of um uh, so it was not but but you know I mean I I have to be honest I was I was so obsessed with the American culture that that I was curious I was just like well this is interesting and then I started you know, really buying all the bestsellers that came out. I, I wanted to feel 
you know, if I'm going to come to this country, I want to be, I, I don't want people to think I'm French and that I'm. You wanted I, to assimilate. I, I, I want to assimilate. Yeah, that's a great word for it. And so I would get all the best. Stars. I mean, at the time I had no money, but I remember that they were people on the street selling bestsellers for like five bucks. And we wow. had just come out near the Strand bookstore, you know. I mean, yeah, I know. Well, that, yeah. Those books. Um, but I would get review copies. I started writing articles for magazines. So I would get on publishers list, you know. Was so, this producer uh, a, a guardian helping you, guide you? or not really. You know, I mean, she she quickly faced out of the business, you know. And, and um, um, I, I've... I found myself, you know, like just in New York. Um, I worked for a small independent production company, distribution company called Spectra Film, and they they were part of that 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 group of companies that were emerging in the eighties, like Vestron and New Line. And oh, wow. um, but the problem was that they were distributors. And and then when they started producing, you know, um, they lost their shirt, and 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 you know, very few of those companies, you know, survived. And that's when I eventually had to move to LA because uh, they were, you know, the the industry in New York just didn't exist anymore. Yeah, you know? it's not uh, as binary as is it it is now. You know, you can do both in 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 both places. So talk to me about that transition to LA. Was that tough? coming from New York, having this, you know, rich assimilation and meeting people and having friends going to LA and knowing nobody, or did you have a network out there? No, I knew no one. So wow. it, was like, it was like, again, here we go. I called my dad and my mom and I said, okay, I think it's time for me to move to LA. So my dad came and, and he said, okay, well, you got X amount of money, you know, and um, that meant I had enough money for three months to find a job really. And wow. so I moved to LA in December of 1989 and my dad helped me it got me like the shittiest car <laughs> <laughs> that was on its last uh, leg and I moved into um, a really cute little studio apartment in the, in the valley and and um I spent Christmas on my own. I went to see Always by Steven Spielberg, and I cried and cried and cried because I was feeling so lonely. So alone. And then uh, I went to buy a TV, and what movie do I watch uh, on New Year's Eve but Sunset Boulevard, where Gloria Swanson commits suicide on New Year's Eve? <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> and And I'm just like, or trying to commit suicide. So I'm just like, oh my God, this is horrible. So I did have one person who was the the son and daughter-in-law of that producer from from New York. And she he was in visual effects and she was in casting and um and I started to I remember, you know, this is before the internet and all that, but yeah. um I sent out because I knew I had three months, three or four months at the most, you know, money wise. Um, I sent out hundreds of resumes. I mean, and um, there was a woman named Nancy Tannenbaum. She had just produced Sex Lies and Videotape. Oh, Steven Soderbergh, the best. Yeah. Yeah. I had met her really briefly and I called her up. She lived in New York and she said, listen, I'll give you four names of people that I think you should meet with. And the same thing happened, you know, like I think people saw that I was such a 
a go-getter and passionate and and I didn't care about I just want to make enough money to stay here you know yeah. I didn't care what it was you know and frankly I didn't care what job I got as long as it was in the film business you yeah, know completely so so um you know, those four people sent me to four other people, sent me to four other people. And I mean, in two months, I'd met so many people. It was. Wow. Any of your heroes? So like, no, it was all like executives. Oh, okay. You know? Got it. I mean, there was one guy that actually I reconnected with recently, Morgan Mason. He had also produced Sex Lies, and he was the son of Janice Mason, the great actor. Wow. And and um, and so we really connected, and he's married to Belinda Carlisle, you know, and wow. and uh, and um, and we just rekindled recently, actually, uh, here in LA. Um, but everybody else was, um, you know, I met with Ridley Scott's company, my friend Sue, who I'm still friends with, uh, this guy Kevin, who worked for another company. I mean, so I started having like this little group of of people. Eventually, the daughter of Arthur Hiller who directed Love Story yeah. and Outrageous Fortune. You know, I had worked with Beth Midler, and she called me up and said, I've heard you're looking for a job in feature development, and I, I, if you want, you can call Beth Midler's company. She has a deal at Disney and, uh, and, and see what, what happens, you know. So, so I met with uh, the head of development, she was on the Disney lot. The company was called Old Girl Productions, and it was on Dopey Drive. Wow. <laughs> I'm just like, wow, what a start. And uh, so I met with a woman who ran our company, uh, Judy Deitman and, and Bonnie Brookheimer, who was Beth Midler's producer. And uh, um, I made a good impression, but there were a lot of people. At the time, again, you have to remember, this is 1990. Yeah. And they were like, I know, I don't remember, I don't know why I remember that number, but but like 54 people had applied and they selected three out of the 54. And I was one of them to meet with Beth Midler. Right. And she was going to make the decision. And um, I had to come up with five potential movie story idea, like a remake, a drama, a comedy, a horror film. I mean, like, you know, and wow. I had pitched that to them. And remember, I've been in America like seven, eight years, so my accent is still pretty. <laughs> you know, my English is a little rough, but um, you know, I got the job. Wow. So, so that was my first job in in Hollywood. But you, you know, it wasn't really my my calling, you know, because uh, uh, it, it, you know what you ended. At, at least at the time, what I ended up doing was just reading bad scripts all day. Yeah. You know? But I, I got to go to Sundance for the first time in 81. And, wow. and, um, and you know, I, I, I made a lot of friends. I continued writing books. So I was, I was very active outside that world. And eventually, uh, that whole medium started of, of laser discs, you know. Yeah. And and I became really interested in in potentially doing work for um, a company like Criterion, who engaged my my services to do the commentary on Brian De Palma's Carrie. Wow! So, so it's me talking. Yeah. Throughout the freaking movie. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember there was a review of the Laserdisc in USA Today that said. 
Laurent Buzero's accent is a little difficult to understand at times, but his enthusiasm more than compensates. No way, amazing. <laughs> I remember that, like, yeah. you know, I was just like, okay, well, that's like, Neither good nor bad, but it's a start. And and uh, I connected uh, with Universal. Um, uh, they heard about me, and they uh, the head of uh, Stevens post production, a guy named Marty Cohen, who is still a good friend of mine. Um, they were going to release a new version of 1941. Wow. Stevens, uh, uh, big flop <laughs> but that had gathered, the only one <laughs> you know, yeah that, that had gathered like cult status and was one of my favorite movies in fact i had all the posters the lobby cards and they i don't know how really they had heard that i was this fanatic about 1941 so they said do you want to do a documentary and i'm like yeah so that was like 28 years ago. Wow. Um, Did you have film experience at this point with cameras? Were not, you not really? You know, I, I I had never shot anything, you know, aside from Super 8 films, you yeah. know. But um, so I didn't think twice, you know, and next thing I knew I was meeting Steven and doing this documentary. How was that meeting your hero? Oh, you, you know, it was amazing. And the thing that's so amazing about about Stephen is that he was so kind and could see that I had done so much research and that I was really passionate that I was not intimidated at all. You wow. know, I, yeah. I was, I just felt very empowered by his presence. You know, I was, I, I wasn't scared. I mean, of course, leading up to it, I was, I was nervous, you know, yeah. because I didn't know what to expect. And there I was, you know, doing lighting and framing the shot. And I'm like, okay, well, you know, wow. and, and, uh, but he could not have been nicer. And, and the fact that he got excited about talking about this movie and he said i want you to put all the bad reviews on the laser desk i want to make sure that <laughs> so he was just so honest and there so suddenly i was like licensing reviews from new york times and hollywood reporter and stuff you know to put on the laser disc yeah and 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 um he, he he was just so amazing and still is so amazing you know uh, that, yeah, that, I, that started your relationship because you guys work yeah. together on it, on everything now, right? So, so that's sort of what I, I, and you know, the thing that was really interesting is that uh, I, you know, they sent me a contract, Universal, but they said, there's no contract for someone like you. We don't really know what you're doing. Yeah. So we're just going to give you a, a feature film contract and don't treat it. Don't treat it to a lawyer because they, they, they're going to tell you not to sign it, but you, you know, so I just signed it because I was like, you know, they just needed a signature on a document. You know? Yeah. But that the, didn't come back to haunt you, I hope, did it? Or No, no. Oh. Because, I mean, it, was, it was like the kind of document that just said you were delivering, you know, a, a film with actors and yeah. this and whatever. So, no, I mean, it was just, a, they literally just needed a piece of paper. So, so that was kind of funny. I still have that old contract, I think. <laughs> you should and, frame it. And, and, and um, and, you know, it was kind of interesting because I was one of the first persons to do this kind of work. And and suddenly what would be perceived as a side little thing or a little hobby while having a job became my job and my yeah. career because pretty quickly 
that whole industry exploded. And for, for, you know, when DVD really came on the scene a few years later, well, I mean, I was just doing so many, I mean, I, I can't. You must have been jumping from job to job to job to job to I job. I mean, I have, I had three editors and, and they were all super creative and, and, and amazing. And we, we really connected and, and I was just flying all over the world, getting interviews and, and, you know, like to the point of what, but who we're talking about at the beginning uh, before you recorded, I think, you know, was for the first time I was, I felt like we were giving a voice to people who had been uh, um, uh, in really the behind the scenes people yeah. that, that no one really knew who they were. Now, right. Prop today, masters, sound mixers, yeah. you know, yeah. You, you know, and today, you know, you take it for granted because it's like everybody knows what a DP is and all that. But, you, you know, really, uh, um, when it came down to it, you know, like uh, back then, you, you just knew the stars and, the, you know, I mean, I mean, you really had to be in the business, I think, to really appreciate, you know, the, the, the effort and know of, of all that goes into the making of a film. And, and I felt a duty, you know, to number one, preserve the history of certain films where people were disappearing really quickly, you yeah. know. And, and number two, to inspire potentially young people to say, wow, I want to do sound design. Yeah. Wow, I want to be a DP or I want to be a production designer. I want to do storyboards or I want to do, you, you, you not necessarily just want to be a star or a director and, and get an Oscar, you know? Yeah. Uh, um, so I, I, I just felt that um, at the beginning, at least, you know, that my documentaries needed to be whatever length I wanted them to be. As, yeah. And I wanted to have very little editorial to them because I wanted people to feel like they were sitting across Steven or across, you, 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 you know, yeah. Scheider or whatever. And, you know, like when I think about it that, you know, Roy Scheider is gone. And when I got a chance to talk to him about Jaws, you know, it was the first time he ever reflected back on that movie wow. at length. And so to be able to do that with him at that time, you know, was, was important. Peter Benchley no longer with us. Uh, 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 Dick Zanuck who produced no longer, yeah. no longer with us. Uh, uh, um, you, you, you know, David Brown, other uh, producer, iconic, no longer with, so all those people, you know, I had this oral history and, yeah. and, and kind of on film of, of them revisiting, uh, those movies but you know the thing that was interesting was accepting a few a few rules number one you had to be mega prepared yeah. because you you know it you you would go back sometimes when i started doing lawrence of arabia or psycho or whatever you know this was going back a few years yeah so i would spend i mean i had the the key to to i mean not literally but i had access to um uh universal files in the valley and we're talking in something out of kafka where you walked in and it was this giant warehouse of boxes you know and and they would pull out you know the box for psycho the box for jaws i mean uh, for hitchcock something and and it was it was just fascinating you know yeah And, and and um you know there were some pretty touching things you know like i i i I tracked down people who, whose career had died, you know, were at the top of their game, wow. you know, when, when they were making those films and, and, and who were living, 
on a cot in a trailer park, you know. Wow. Uh, um, one producer, I won't say who it was, but like, you know, literally pissing on himself and and living on a cot in a, I mean, you know, I, I managed to get a, a shot where there was a cool picture in the back, but I mean, it was tragic, you know, because it yeah. just felt, and those people, some of them had Oscars, you know? Yeah. So, so it was, it was, it was sad, you know, and it just showed me the importance of the work I was doing, yeah. you know, to sort of uh, remind people that, that a whole team made, you know, uh, Lawrence of Arabia. Yeah, you gave, you gave a voice to the voiceless, you know. Yeah, and to yeah. people who, who you, you, you know, no one will ever forget Lawrence of Arabia, but people will forget, you know, Phyllis Dalton, who was the costume designer, or yeah. Don Box, who was the, the production designer, you know, uh, or Eddie Fowley, who was this crazy guy that was David Lean's best friend and who was like a prop master, but did all kinds of stuff for him. Uh, you know, I found him somewhere in Spain where he, they actually shot parts of Lawrence of Arabia and he never left, you know, the old part on Aqaba was filmed in Spain. And so it was, it was kind of, you know, and, and of course, since then, you know, a lot of the people I've interviewed, like, you know, we're thinking about Sidney Lumet the other day and, and I did, you know, Network and Serpico and Prince of the City and got yeah. all those amazing moments. And so, I mean, selfishly for me, it was, it, it was an education, you know, but it gives me great, great pride when some people, you know, like yourself, you know, feel like I've, I've made a little contribution, you know? Yeah, you know, I mean, your, your Jaws documentary is incredible, you know? Uh, like, you know, even if it's just a few people that, that you make a little difference, you know, that's all, that's all I'm grateful for. But, you, you know, growing with the industry has been, has been interesting, the home entertainment industry, you know? Yeah. And, and um, it became very marketing-oriented to the point where I think sometimes people think I, you know, they'll say, oh, talking heads interviews. And I'm like, don't call that a talking head. You know how much yeah. it's like, it's like calling a close up a talking head, you know? Yeah. And, and think of my dinner with Andre, you know, that's a movie and it's all talking heads, you know? Yeah, so, totally. So I, I, you know, I think there's been a little bit of stigma attached to what I do because uh, a lot of people feel that it's manipulated by marketing and by the studio. Uh, and I have to say, because I have the privilege of working with really uh, amazing filmmakers, you know, um, I, I, I do have a voice um, when I do uh, one of those uh, uh, films, you know, and, um, and so I, I, you know, I'm glad that, that you, you noticed. Um, Very much so. You know, as, as that niche market became mainstream and as we've seen, you know, the past few years, the world of documentary filmmaking just exploding. Yeah. Um, um, I started- In some ways superseding cinema, you know, uh, as, oh. as, as Marvel properties have become the dominant force. Oh, yeah. yeah. And, 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 you know, with this situation we have right now, it's the type of filmmaking that's going to thrive because you don't need big crews, you know? And, yeah. So, um, uh, it's, it's, I, I mean, you, you, you know, it's a field that I think is really important now. 
to me, you know, uh, the only big difference, you know, between narrative and, and, and documentaries is that with a documentary, you don't know exactly how it's going to turn out, you know? Right. Yeah. And that's been true for, you, you know, whereas with the script, you know, and you make a narrative, at least you know what the story is, right? Yeah, so, and you got the storyboards and, and, and you, you have get, an idea. You know, yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it's as hard to make the best movie as it is to make a worse movie, I guess. But, uh, um, you know, in, and no one sets out to make a bad film, you know. Uh, yeah. But um, at least you have a script. So, but, you know, it's just as hard to get a performance from someone in an interview setup as it is to get a performance from an actor when you have to do a really intense sequence. Yeah. Um, and I'm not saying that my interviews are performances because they're hopefully genuine and real, yeah. but, you know, you need to guide the people to not, not only trust you with their stories, but remind them of things that they may have forgotten and create an environment and a, and a you know, some sort of, of, um, uh, a journey that feels worth it to them to to embark on, and I've had situations where where people have walked in, have walked in not wanting to do the interview, yeah. and and uh, and again, I'm not saying that you know, oh look at me. I'm just saying that I always come in so prepared that they've come out of it thanking me and saying, you know. This was really great. I, I I didn't know I could speak that way or that I could share that way. So it's been an, a, a, a great, and you know, it all comes from passion and curiosity and knowledge of of really looking at something in a in a profound kind of way. You know, in the same way that you listen to music. And, you know, the thing that's interesting about cinema is that for for many years before home entertainment. A film was meant to be experienced once, really. You know, I mean, you you would see it in the theaters, and and then I not many people would want to see the same movie over and over. You know, and yeah. that's kind of unique in the art form because when you think about music, you know, you listen to music over and over, painting, yeah. you look at them over and over. You know, but cinema is very unique in that way. You know that that it was really meant to be experienced once. You know. And that very few repeat performances. Well, that changed completely with, you, you know, the advent of, of home entertainment, where people would suddenly now watch things over and over. And you could argue that that was happening on TV, but on TV you had commercials, and it was not as you know as profound as as what we have with home entertainment. You know, so so yeah. it's been great growing with that and. And back to the explosion of documentary filmmaking, you know, you know, I partnered up with Amblin Television and and uh, Turner, and we created a series together called Night of the Movies. That was that was really great fun to do. And then uh, um, I did a feature documentary on Dick Zanuck, uh, the producer of Jaws, which was really an amazing, amazing experience for me. And and sad at the same time because the day he saw the 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 final cut, you know, <clears throat> he said to me, well, let's have lunch and let's celebrate. So we made a date to go on Friday. He called me maybe like Monday or Tuesday. Yeah. And then, and then uh, the Friday morning, you know, I'm getting ready to go and meet him. And I get a call from his office that he just died. 
Oh my you know? God. And so that changed the course of the ending of the film. You know, suddenly that became the film that we showed at his memorial and, and everybody in the business came. It was at the Academy. And I mean, and I mean, everybody, all the studios, all the, the people who, who knew him from Warren Beatty to, I mean, like Steven and, and, um, it was, um, you know, it, it reinforced the 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 notion of the importance of of documenting those people, you know. Yeah. And so then, you know, um, that led to um, one day getting a call from Stephen's office and 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 um, saying, you know, have you heard about a book called Five Came Back? And and uh, um, I I said yes. I, I I mean, I think that's a fantastic book and and i love mark harris and and uh, well you know we're setting it up at netflix and uh, and um we want you to direct it you know and um and that was a collaboration with amblin and scott rudin and barry diller and an incredible experience and and you know it challenged me quite a bit because of course you know the the temptation was to do um to interview historians and survivors and uh, family members who tell the stories of those five guys, you know, and and um, I remember Scott Rudin particularly challenging me to finding a better yeah. way, and 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 he was right in the sense that you, you know a lot of people don't know who those great directors are. Sadly, you know, a lot like of you, you really expose them to me. You know, I, I knew John Houston, but I didn't know the other ones quite uh, as well. Yeah. yeah. And, 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 and so it's, it's sad that they've vanished. I mean, people know their movies, but yeah. you, you know, to really get to know them, uh, uh, I felt I needed to find kind of contemporary voices to, to lead them on. And so uh, that's when I came up with the idea of Guillermo and, and Steven. And yeah, having the modern biggest, some of the greatest cinema contributors of our time reflect yeah. on them. And that was wonderful. I love that. Yeah, thank you. So, so in any case, so, so that, was, that was a fantastic experience. And, and um, I have to say, you know, it was so well received and, and um, uh, really was another benchmark in my in my uh, in my career you know yeah it was incredible I loved it I, I blew through it you know I was like glued to the screen the entire time it's so riveting and you don't hear of a lot of directors serving you know and that was such a unique perspective especially how ingrained they got with the government and and the use of propaganda you know that you forget that World War II you know we, we've been very lucky I feel like is it as my generation to not really other than the Iraq war, not have uh, that kind of a, I mean, this COVID-19 would be the closest thing we've had to an epidemic of, of that. And I thought you did it with such justice and truth. And I, I was, I have so much admiration for that, that piece. No, I mean, it, it was, it was really a great, a great experience. And, and, you know, um, uh, having Meryl Streep, you know, do the narration was also Scott's idea. Um, and, uh, um, I thought that getting the chance to to direct her, I can use that word, you know, <laughs> when she read the narration and she made some interesting tweaks to it, and and um, and I was listening to her, and I'm like, I've never heard that voice from her, you know. It's yeah. like she she channeled something. I mean, that's when you know your eyes 
really witness the genius of certain people, you know? Yeah. And she won an Emmy for it. So she owes me so much. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> so, no, but I was thrilled that she, she, she won because uh, it was, it was recognized as a great performance on her part. And, and she definitely raised the bar on, yeah. on that level for sure. Um, and, and, and then, you know, like I was looking for another project uh, pretty quickly as I was wrapping up. I imagine you had a lot of momentum and a lot of people wanting you to do things. Yeah, I did. And, 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 you know, at the same time, you know, I was, I was super busy because I can't remember what films I was working on with, with Steven, maybe it may have been the post he was starting. And Got it. so I jumped into that and that was super exciting. Uh, Quick question. When you, when you're making the behind the scenes, are you on set the entire time for the shoot? It depends. It depends on the, on the, on the film. It depends on the budget. Uh, uh, on some of them, I've been on set uh, every day, you wow. know, uh, or most of uh, of every day. And some, you know, we select the best scenes to to be on. Uh, so the bigger, really- the bigger events, you know. Yeah, well, it depends yeah. on the on 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 the nature of the film as well, you yeah. know. And and um, so so, but each time, you know, I try to go into this saying, okay, what are the scenes that speak the most for? How, how I want to tell the, the behind-the-scenes story. And also, you know, I do have that other hat, which is to think in terms of marketing and, yeah. and, and how, how the film is going to be sold. Uh, um, but uh, I, 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 I signed with WME, which was a, a fantastic thing after Five came back. And, and, uh, and so we started looking for projects. And, and the thing that was kind of uh, interesting, there was a guy, uh, there's a guy named Manoa Bowman, who is one of the producers of Natalie Wood. And he had written a coffee table book on Natalie Wood. And he called me and he said, you know, I'm really close with the uh, Wagners and with Natasha. Uh, yeah. um, and and produced the movie with you as, as well, right? Natasha. Correct. Natasha. Yeah. 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 And, 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 uh, um, and so he said, you know, um, when I was doing the book with the family, there was so much material. We found home movies. We found photos. That there's really a documentary uh, uh, to be done. Uh, can you suggest and recommend a director? Yeah. And I'm like, well, how about me? Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and he said, oh, you like Natalie Wood? And I'm like, well, I'll argue that if you don't like Natalie Wood, then you don't like movies. Yeah, how can you like not? Them. Yeah. You know, and um, I said, you know, I would love to do it. And, of course, I'd like to meet with Natasha and see what she thinks. So I, we had a, a lunch, and, and I really connected with Natasha on a, on a personal level. And, 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 and as I got to know her and the family, you know, what really emerged for me were two big things, you know. was The first thing was... Um, that Natalie Wood was an autobiographical actress. And yeah. what I mean by that is that after, you, you know, when she, after, uh, as we know, she started like really young. Um, kind of the Leo of her generation. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. she started so young. But after she did Rebel Without a Cause, you know, she was able to, to choose the movies that she wanted to make. Because back then, studios owned actors, correct? Exactly. Yeah. And, and she took on Warner Brothers. And, and, and so the thing that was really interesting to me was, as I prepared for the film, I was like, oh my God, watching those films that she did, 
speaks so much about who she was and what she stood for. Yeah. You know? And and so therefore, uh, that was a big revelation to me. If you yeah. want to know who Natalie Wood is, you know, do um, do watch her movies and and um, you'll find out so much about what she stood yeah. for. And up until her last film that she was doing when she passed away, Brainstorm. Brainstorm. You know, I don't know if you've ever seen it, but it's... With Christopher Walken, right? Yeah, yeah it's a yeah. great film. And, and you know, in the film, you it's a story of, of Chris Walken and Natalie are married, and they're getting divorced. And through this adventure they go through, they fall in love again. Yeah. And, and and at the end, you you imagine they're going to stay together. Well, that's not unlike her own story with with Robert Wagner. Yeah, R.J. Right? Is, yeah, is what he, yeah, yeah. Married, divorced, and rekindled and remarried, and so it's it's pretty interesting that up until the day she died, she was making a film that um, sort of emulate her own love story you know in meta so to speak yeah yeah and and i i just found that fascinating but you know the other thing that happened was really uh by looking at all the home movies and the personal photos what really emerged to me was like a personal family story yeah and and um you, you know a story of great triumph and fame and also great tragedy and sadness, you know, yeah. and, and you can't write that stuff. You know, it's like, if you put it in a film, you'd, you'd say it's far-fetched, you know, but her life and what she accomplished in that short amount of time, you know, um, I knew uh, Michael Crichton quite well, you know, as well. And he died so young. And I, I remember thinking the same way about Natalie, that she did so much, in her lifetime, it's almost that, you know, I am not particularly religious, but you, you start thinking, you know, for people who do so much yeah. and are taken away so early, you know, yeah. there is a sense of destiny that they're, they're able to accomplish a lot more than the average person would in their entire lifetime, should they live to be, you know, uh, 90. So, so I really love that angle, that personal angle, and 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 tell the story through the eyes of Natasha, yeah. and um, and through the eyes of of the people who really knew her, and you know the thing that's pretty amazing and and again sad um, is that since we finished the film. You know, uh, Natasha's dad, uh, Richard Gregson, who we filmed in Wales, you know, passed away. Yeah, I remember her saying this might be the last interview. And, that and it of, was. Yeah. And, and then Mark Crowley, who was arguably, you know, Natalie's closest friend, uh, died a few weeks ago, right before we went on lockdown. Of a heart no way. Is that the, pl- the playwright? Yeah. Or? Wow. Yeah. And when you think that Mart is you know became her best friend and and she uh, it's all thanks to her that he got to ride boys in the band because she allowed him to live with her she gave him work and yeah and and um of course he was mega talented but i'm just saying that she had such an influence on his career that you know the fact that boys in the band was revived last year um and and um 
it's a new film on Netflix soon yeah. that her influence continues to to exist uh, um, even if you don't necessarily know that she was behind the initial uh, uh, play in the 60s, in the late 60s. So, you know, it just felt like a story. And, and the fact that Natasha is so beautiful and young and- It looks so much like the spinning image of her mother, you know? I know. And yeah. You know, I was warned about that, that as I'm talking to her, she's going to start morphing into Natalie. Yeah, it, it, I felt that towards the middle of the film. I'm like, oh my, is this Natalie? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's funny you picked up on that. And 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 it's so it was, it, it was, um, a great experience, you know, and, and at the same time, you know, she was a producer, but she, uh, and, and we decided that the interview with RJ was going to be done by her. Then Mark said, Oh, I want the same setup for my interview, Interesting. Um, which I fought at first because I was just like, you know, I, I, we, we felt Natasha and I, we felt like, you know, we want as much, as possible to have people feel that it's not fabricated by the family. You right. Know, not, you know, the word that people use is such a celebration. Well, it's not really, you know, it's really this, uh, a really intense story of family and, yeah. and, and, and fame and, and uh, fortune and triumph. And like I said, loss as well and tragedy. But I, I really felt that, um, uh, when Mark said that, that I'm like, oh, I don't know. I it's, I said, okay, okay, because yeah, it yeah. was not going to be convinced otherwise. And now that we've lost him, you know, I feel so blessed. Yeah, that we that I agreed to do it that way. And and uh, the fact that Natasha and he were so close, you get a little window into the relationship that existed between him and Natalie. Yeah, know? the sort of humor and nonchalant and speaking his mind and and making you know uh jokes about about you know stuff was was just great one one of the things i i love the most about your film is 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 how well you portrayed her but also how genuine she is because as an actor i mean i'm sure you can understand how tough it is in this business and you know where she took people and helped cultivate their careers when she was a pioneer like robert redford getting him started you know like a lot of people don't know that, that she really facilitated that. And it was so beautiful. Yeah, no, and I think she, you know, it's so interesting because as she was, uh, as she died, you know, she was uh, going to be doing a stage play of, of uh, Anastasia, as we mentioned in the film. And she was looking to direct something and she was a producer and she had television projects. And, you know, she was doing television at a time where, you know, if you're an actor on television, that means that you're a TV actor and you cannot go back to films. It may mean if you used to be a big movie star, that means that your your star has has died. You know, it's not like today where there's that 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 no line between the work yeah. you do on TV and the work you do on film. Thank God. But back then, it was very courageous to say no. I want to do the Cracker Factory because it talks about something that I think is important and I want to bring that to people's home, you know. Yeah. I want to do a stage play because I'm scared of doing it and 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 I will do it and she was going to do it. So and and she was working with filmmakers like, you know, Doc Trumbull um, who is a VFX genius. You know, he did Close Encounters and 2001 and Blade Runner. But this was only his second film as a director. Yeah. And But she trusted him and 
And, and um, you know, she worked with Sidney Pollack and, and, you know, Paul Mazursky, directors who became iconic for their times. And, I, you know, as an actor, you, you, you look at her filmography and you realize she's making each transition yeah. in the business. You know, when she does Bob and Ted and Carol and Alice, you know, it really is a new kind of cinema. Yeah. Or Love with a Proper Stranger, you know, that's not shot on the studio like she was doing few years prior you know it's shot on the streets of new york people are looking to the camera it's handheld it's shaky you know but she's making those transitions whereas other contemporaries of hers are not making the transition and they're slowly being pushed aside they're done expendable and 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 uh so it's pretty inspirational and i think mia farrow said it best also when she said you know if you if you want to be an actor, you know, um, you know, you should watch her performances because there's not a false note in them. Yeah. Whether the movie is good or not, you know, when she, I mean, Inside Jesse Clover is not a great film, but her performance is, 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 it blows you away. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Why, well, I, I, Lauren? It's been amazing having you on. I got a final couple of questions, but I would love to have you back on someday. We could do like a a two hour episode. Just no, and I'm sorry, <laughs> don't be rambling on. And, and no, 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 no. I, I I I got the heads up that you have to go to to another one, so I want to make sure that yeah. I I end on a proper note. Having all the experience that you've had under your belt, going from the young kid in France to now working with some of the greats in these behind the scenes and on set, what, what, what are some of the takeaways you've, you've learned about to be a great artist? You know, I know that's a very broad question, but. No, no, I, I think it's a really great question because I've asked myself that. I think the biggest thing is to constantly reinvent yourself mm-hmm. and, and, and stay to stay current because harder than achieving success in any aspect of the film business, you know, in any branches is to have longevity in it, Yeah, you know, and I think you can only accomplish that if you courageously reinvent yourself, um, constantly curious. And if you're going to talk about someone like Natalie Wood, who symbolizes, you know, a certain period of Hollywood, bring a perspective of a young person like Natasha, bring yeah. a perspective that young people are going to be inspired and want to watch this. Don't do it in an old codger kind of way. Totally. Yeah. And, and, and so that would be my, my, my so-called wisdom, you know. Amazing. It's very beautifully put. And, and what's next for you and any chance that we moreover myself could get you to do a narrative feature one yeah. day? Yeah. Uh, no, you can. I have actually, um, I have a, a feature film in development. Amazing. With a great producing team. And, and um, I don't want to say too much about it because they will jinx it. But I, yeah. I have been trying to do narrative film. And it's very hard to make that transition, you know. I know. Yeah. Uh, um, and, uh, but I, I, I was at some point developing your project with Stephen King. And, and that didn't work out. But we said good friends. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, uh, um you, you know, so I'm constantly looking for that. And, and I have another big documentary that I'm developing uh, with Dustin Lance Black, who wrote... Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, Great screenplay writer. Yeah. 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 And he wrote his autobiography called Mama's Boy, which is really one of the best books um, uh, 
ever written, I think, uh, about oneself's uh, reflection on a, uh, on a very, very compelling family life. And his mom, who was the victim of a pandemic, actually, uh, polio. And um, it's an amazing, amazing story. And I have a really interesting uh, point of view on how to do it. And, and so we're developing it together. So I hope that it goes really soon. Well, I, I really look forward to both, and I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for everything that you've done as, a, as an actor, as an artist, as a connoisseur of cinema. You're a real hero, and when the history books are written, I promise your name is going to be at the top of that list. And moreover, <laughs> I hope one day we get a chance to work together. When, you, when you're doing your feature, send I, me an audition. <laughs> I, I love it. Congrats on, on, on your own inspirational uh, journey, and, and uh, thank you for your kind and generous words. It means a lot. Uh, it means a lot to me, and I, I'd I really would love to have you back someday. Next project. Thank you so much for being here. Okay, thank you. Take All care. All right. Take care. Bye. If you like the show, rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for listening.